Hello, and welcome to ICI Digs Deep, sponsored by Assured Partners of Indiana, LLC. Today, Richard Hedgecock talks to Build Indiana Council lobbyists Dennis Falkenberg and Lori Maudlin of Appian and Steve Fisher of Fisher Consulting about what the state and national election results mean for our industry. All right, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to the latest ICI Digs Deep podcast. Reassembled the A-team of lobbying efforts on the state and federal levels. And let's real quick go around the uh, horn here and introduce yourselves. Um, Steve? Hi, I'm Steve Fisher. I'm Washington representative for the Build Indiana Council. And Dennis? Dennis Falkenberg with Appian. Work both the Indiana State House and in Washington for the Build Indiana Council. And Lori. Lori Maudlin, also with Appian. Great. So the election's over. Finally. It only took a week, but we got there, right? Um, <laughs> let's talk first about the state level and how things turned out here. We had, you know, gotten some rumblings there toward the end of the uh, election cycle that things were going to be tight, that some of these Traditionally, Republican areas were seeing perhaps some of the minority party jumping in and grabbing a seat here and there. The governor's team was a little bit nervous. Why don't you guys talk a little bit about that and how that all shook out as far as the statehouse races went? Well, I can start with the governor, the big conservative revolt, and I'll say libertarian, maybe Tea Party types from the past that didn't like masks and they didn't like the governor issuing by executive order things that they thought were in the legislature's purview. Those revolts did not happen of consequence. A libertarian, they all threw their votes toward the libertarian guy. It was like not the governor, but not a Democrat was that choice. Got 12% of the vote. So yeah, that was a huge victory for libertarians to get 12% of the vote, but really did nothing of consequence to Governor Holcomb's bottom line. He got 58% of the vote. Well, it was interesting because some of the conspiracy theories that were being thrown out right before the election, you know, the morning of the oh, we're going to go back to a stage one lockdown and all of these things that seemed designed to try to influence it didn't, you know, have any traction and in some ways probably may have helped the other side more than you would have expected. But it was a handily won election for sure. And on the Democrat front there, I guess I skipped over that. The Democrat candidate, Woody Myers, a doctor in the time of a hundred year pandemic, probably the ideal type person you might want up on the ballot, handle the crisis of today, got like 30% of the vote. It, it was pitiful. And yet, based on the campaign he ran, it was pretty high, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. He, uh, yeah, he couldn't raise money. The Libertarian got on TV before the Democrat did. Um, it, it was pitiful. The uh, Democrat state has announced he's not going to run again. Some people are calling for the entire Democrat Central Committee to resign because they have not been able to perform in statewide elections. They have no statewide office holders in Indiana. Haven't had for four years. Eight and, years. Eight years. Well, elected Joe Donnelly. Joe Donnelly a while back, but right, right. That took a fluke. But looking ahead, everybody's saying, who do they have in 24? They got to grow somebody really quickly. It's just uh, a drought on that side of the ledger. And from the legislative standpoint, we kept hearing, well, the, the supermajority is probably going to go away. They're going to eat into it. 
they grew their majorities. Yeah. Got a net four seats, um, only lost one. You know, and on the Senate side, too, they had one loss, a Republican loss, but strong in both houses. But that was a 10% gain for Democrats. I know. <laughs> There's that. <laughs> <laughs> they only had 10 and now they got 11. Right. One thing that's interesting, though, is we've got 15 new members coming in. Now, two of them were there before, so 13, I guess, new members coming into the House and Senate. So that continuation of new people coming in and having to reinform and you know reeducate continues. We're, we're definitely not getting any of the stability back that we used to see decades ago. And a new Democrat leader in the Indiana Senate. Senator Lannon had been for, gosh, about six years, probably the leader of the Democrat minority and, uh, you know, super nice guy, cooperative with the majority, didn't get up and pound on the podium kind of guy, has been replaced, I think, willingly, it seems, at least outwardly, by Greg Taylor. He probably has the most minutes at the podium per member who has never passed a bill of anyone I know. I think you're going to see quite a different style of leadership from the minority. I mean, they've only got 11 votes. I don't know where that gets you, but you better bring some drinks along to get you through a session day. They're going to be long sessions. So you would think then, given all this going into the legislative session, it's same old, same old, but there obviously are going to be some differences, not the least of which are presented by the COVID budget issues that we've got. So what are some of the things that the election, how is that going to change the atmosphere at the Capitol besides what you just mentioned? The, the whole COVID issue brought up the issue of governor's power or legislature's power. Indiana got, I think it was $2.3 billion of relief money for covid and they were sitting on about a billion of it. And the legislature's going, call us back into session. We should tell you what the priorities to spend that. The appropriators should have some input. And the governor says, well, I've been consulting the fiscal leadership of the House and the Senate. But all those anti-maskers are saying, well, we should have a say too. There are 150 of us, not four. That's going to be quite an issue next session of people trying to reel back in governor's power by executive order. He has executive orders that have been in effect since March. If it's more than 30 days, you have to call us back in session and let us vote on what the restrictions or loosening of restrictions might be. Those conservatives, those folks who went libertarian, all of that are going to be in that crowd. It was interesting. The authority given to the governor came about after 9-11. I guess it was put in place in 2003 to allow for those actions that need to be taken. And probably nobody's thought about them since then until this happened. And now all of a sudden, you know, it's definitely the bigger deal than they ever thought it would be. So I agree with Dennis that that'll be a big issue. In terms of our issue, though, all of our proponents, minus the senator who lost, who was a huge champion for us, everybody's still intact. So that bodes well for, for transportation in the session. That's great. And I think redistricting because of the census will be a big issue that will probably become quite the bargaining chip for the votes they need here and there to get by the reeling in the governor's power, voting on a budget that will pass. And that's going to be the sweet topping of <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of the bills. But Dennis brought up a good point. Redistricting with 71 members is a little difficult. You know, that's not too many more places you can 
sort of subdivide to make places stronger. So that's a challenge for sure. Yeah. Okay, so as we segue to the federal, let's very quickly talk about the one competitive congressional race that we had. Lots of money spent and ended up with the same result. I think we found that suburbs aren't quite as purple as people thought. You know, with all the money that was out there, I think there was, you know, the Club for Growth in Washington spent a ton of money in the 5th District here. And they had some pretty effective commercials portraying, rightly or wrongly, and I'll hold my opinion on that, about the Democrats' support for defunding police, being a Nancy Pelosi pal, (laughs) things like that, that were pretty far reach. But, you know, I think they stuck. You know, I'm not sure we want to be like Nancy Pelosi in Hamilton County. I don't think we support defunding police. So I'm going to I'm going to stick with the tried and true Republican side. You know, if you saw Jim Clyburn's comments today, he said that very thing. Yeah. (laughs) Democrats have been the Nancy Pelosi scarecrow has been thrown up for years and years and years in every race everywhere. But this defund the police thing, I think really did damage some of that momentum that the Democrats felt like they had on these legislative races. I was on a long bike ride on Saturday, right after the presidential election had been called by the networks. And I thought I would see downtown as I rode through downtown, I thought I'd see throngs of Biden's supporters you know, with champagne bottles on the circle. I didn't see that yet. But what I did see was the Capitol being surrounded by Trump supporters, many with signs that said Nancy Pelosi stole the election. (laughs) You know, she is just, you know, she is the scary one to put (laughs) And I'm like, wow, what did she have to do with it? (laughs) It's effective. You know, she's headed this off to some degree and that a while ago, and now she's going to retire from the speakership at the end of this next Congress. So in a way, she's, yeah, she's a boogeyman, but she's one that's already announced that she's stepping off the stage in two years, but she has two years. So in a funny way, it kind of would probably alarm more people because you're right, Dennis, that dynamic is occurring where she's become this poster for all the liberal, progressive, scary things that are going to be done to the country. But because she's announced that she's stepping down in two years, She's not going to get pushed out of the speakership, I think. There was a lot of noise the first couple of days after the election last week that because the Democrats had slipped backward, lost a few seats, that it was time for her to go. But I think the fact that she's already announced that she's going kind of takes some energy out of that. And uh, I could be wrong, but I think ultimately uh, she's going to be there. It's it's interesting, all the squabbling in the media over the last couple of days between Democratic moderates in the Congress and progressives. Uh, moderates arguing that the party could have done better if there weren't all these scary AOC left, Green New Deal uh, ideas, socialist ideas floating around out there. And that the Republicans had been very effective in using mm-hmm. those ideas to scare moderates to vote Republican. And the numbers show that. But it's interesting to watch the battle now. I guess it's finger pointing, but it's it's the moderate side of the Democratic Party saying, hey, this is where the future is. It's not with that left, left, left stuff. And we need to cut that stuff loose because it's a ball and chain around our leg. That's how Clinton was successful. It's triangulation, right? So, Steve, the presidential election was finally decided on Saturday. It's still sort of stirring around, but it's decided. So going forward, what do things look like? What's the atmosphere going to be like with a still divided government and a still divided country going forward? Well, I think a few things. First, we're going to have to see what the 
Republican Party is going to be like in the next Congress, uh, the next Congress being during 2021 and 22? Will it be Trumpist in character or will it return to the GOP and its policy priorities that we saw before Trump came into office? And I think we don't know the answer to that yet. I think there are plenty of people on Capitol Hill that are Republicans who would like to respond to the Republican base, which is very much embraced President Trump. And they would like to respond by continuing that flavor of governing, combative and fairly right wing. There are you know, plenty of Republicans on Capitol Hill who've sort of held their nose respectfully, didn't say anything, but held their nose during the Trump years. They didn't like that the style of governing that President Trump brought to uh, Washington. And I think a lot of those folks would like to return to a uh, a more practical Republican Party that tries to get things done, doesn't spend as much time fighting culture wars and identity politics and so on. So I think we need to first see what the GOP is going to be like and see uh, how much of that change of flavor will affect things. But uh, as you said, it's a divided government, and we're going to have the Democrats in charge of the House. We're going to have the Republicans probably in charge of the Senate, but just by a hair. And of course, the White House in Democratic hands. And so really to get things done, efforts need to be pretty bipartisan. Fortunately, I would say that, you know, if anyone probably has an ability to be bipartisan, it's Joe Biden. Look, we just elected a moderate president. And, you know, that's new for the last decade. We had a far right guy elected president last time. We had a far left guy elected president prior to him. So we now have a moderate elected president and a moderate who had spent decades as a U.S. senator and knows a lot of the senators personally and has lots of relationships in Washington. So I think to the degree Joe Biden wants to move forward in a moderate way, which he will, this is not a guy who's trying to figure out what he's all about. He knows what he's all about. He knows how he wants to govern. I suspect it'll be bipartisan. And I suspect he probably stands a better chance than just about anybody in Washington to convince Congress to uh, work together in a bipartisan fashion. You know, I think there are many who would settle just for, you know, a return to civility. So if you've got that, I guess I'm fascinated with what you were talking about earlier on the future of the GOP as a guy who used to work for a GOP person. You know, it's so hard to build a movement based on a person. We saw that with Ross Perot. We saw that Gosh, going back to George Wallace, I'm sure we could go through history and find all kinds of people that tried to start movements that were based on the unique personality of one individual. And this current president is certainly a unique individual personality. Right. So you wonder how long the legs will be there for this Trumpism. And it'll be fascinating to watch who tries to inherit that. Yeah. And can they? Do they have the skills to become a son of Trump. Uh, does literally his son have an ability who might want to run for office? Does he have an ability to be his father and to be accepted that way by the public and the Republican base? Do others have an ability to step forward and try to be that guy? I think you're right. I think it's very hard to transfer that personality. I think the other reality out there is that President Trump, Donald Trump is not going anywhere. I mean, he's he might move to Florida or New York once he leaves D.C., but he will not 
likely step off the national stage. I suspect he will be ever present in the news commenting about what's going on with national policy and with culture and with uh, Hollywood and the other things he's typically had his hands in. I would not be shocked if he was on TV, either being interviewed all the time or if he weren't the interviewee, interviewer. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if he had his own television program. There's rumors of him starting his own network to compete with Fox. So I suspect we should all realize that unlike other presidents, and, and we've all experienced this, and we really probably have not paid that much attention to it, but all previous presidents have quietly gone into the shadows after they left office and let the new guy rule. I don't suspect that's going to happen with Donald Trump. And it will, it will cause a very different dynamic to occur where you have a former president still agitating the base to, in fact, affect policy. So this will be fascinating to watch how it occurs. Maybe he sort of takes on a, a sort of a Rush Limbaugh kind of a role where exactly. he is sort of the... A voice out there that tries to provide uh, direction and, and critique. Other actors that are actually elected officials, you know, take up the mantle and run with it. We'll have to see how that goes. He also, you know, there's uh, my gosh, there's been so much speculation in the in the media over the last few days. Some are suspecting that he'll quickly announce that he's running in 2024, and, and for no other reason to help avoid some prosecution on some of the civilian you know, lawsuits that he's supposedly being investigated on a variety of issues from his taxes to a variety of other things that he's now vulnerable now that he won't be in, in office as a sitting president, he is now vulnerable for prosecution. If he were to announce that he's running, at least he could claim that these prosecutions are politically motivated, which might help him in court. Even if he ultimately doesn't run, he could claim he's going to run just to keep himself in the media, keep himself relevant, and to also try to keep some of these people that are chasing him, the lawyers and prosecutors that are chasing him at bay. But how long will elected Republicans who are patiently waiting their turn going to put up with that? I guess is where I end up going. Oh, I think the most fascinating person to watch is going to be Mike Pence. Uh, you know, where is someone like Mike? who I don't think, given his druthers, would govern with the same style. I don't even think he has the personality to do it. Govern with the same style as Donald Trump. So what does a Mike Pence version of Trumpism look like? Clearly, what all the prospective candidates will look for is the base is the same. The, the motivated Republican base that responded to Trump, clearly, it's not hard to figure out what those issues are that they're responding to. So. The next guy will have to try to respond and be uh, address those issues. They probably won't be able to do it with the same style as the president, but they'll have to try to figure out their own way to to embrace those issues and motivate the base. It's hard to imagine Mike Pence having the, the kind of style that Donald Trump does uh, as far as... No. <laughs> I mean, I just cannot imagine it. It's, it. I have family members that are huge Trump supporters, and I, I was listening yeah. to them just today and arguing about how it was all fixed. This is just going to grow in their minds and their bellies for four years, I think. Just the scandal that their president was thrown out of office because of the liberal media. So I just, in my mind, it's somebody... You know, she's a woman, so that's that's a strike against her, of course. But a Nikki Haley, who has two years in the administration, who stood up to him enough, but didn't make him mad, 
and two years out of the administration to appeal to the non-Trump version of the Republican Party that can pull it, might be able to pull off that fine line of not attracting too much criticism from Trump. Because I agree that Trump is going to be commenting on everybody and nobody will be as good as he is. I mean, so that take that for granted. But even his son was tweeting out, why is nobody standing up against these election results? And then two contenders immediately started tweeting out, we need to contest these election results. So it's obvious that the whole family is going to be involved in this right. decision-making of the next president. I go to that two, three, four percent of those people who are clearly attracted to the personality piece of it. Right. When that's gone, does that energy sort of fade away and they go back to doing what they did before? I don't know. At Assured Partners of Indiana, relationships are their number one priority. That commitment has empowered them to be the fastest growing independent insurance agency in the United States. Founded in 2011 as a national partnership of leading independent property, casualty, and employee benefits brokerage firms, they're now one of the largest brokers in the nation with offices in 38 states in two countries. To get in touch with Assured Partners of Indiana, give them a call at 317 844-7759. Well, let's talk more about nuts and bolts here. So we will have a Biden administration. He's going to be making appointments here soon. What are the rumors we're hearing about transportation secretary and any of those sorts of things? Any of you who have um, been to some of our national conferences when uh, Oregon Representative Earl Blumenauer showed up, actually off his bicycle with the rubber band around his right pant leg so it wouldn't get caught in the chains of his bike. I've seen that he is rumored as transportation secretary. I don't think that's probably going to happen, but you know, that is in the realm of possibilities that we go to someone who is, you know, not thinking about roads and bridges, but they're thinking about trains and buses and bicycles. He's definitely passionate about it. Boy, that would not be a good move. I've heard FRA administrator, the former FRA administrator, Sarah Feinberg, is a possibility also. Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, has been floated as well. I'm curious. I kind of view being Secretary of Transportation as, as a bit of a dead end for somebody who's got a lot of career ahead of him like he does. I don't know if these people, <laughs> Luminar might be more interested in. I don't know if Garcetti would take it. Being mayor of the second largest city in the country is probably a bigger job, quite frankly, than being Transportation Secretary. But we'll see. Where's Indiana's own Pete Buttigieg going to land? Surely he's going to get something. I agree he's going to get something. I asked that yesterday to a friend who's here in Washington who sort of plugged in, and he said the Veterans Affairs Secretary would probably be what Buttigieg gets. Sure. Mostly because the other agencies, to manage those portfolios, you have to have some street cred with those stakeholder groups, whether it's Department of Agriculture having street cred with the farmers of the nation and the farm groups. Or transportation having credibility with, you know, the railroads and the airlines and the highway folks and so on. And really, Buttigieg would probably lack that kind of street cred for most of the other departments in the government. But with Veterans Affairs, he, you know, he's a former military guy. I suspect he's been promised something. I don't know if you guys noticed this when he stepped down from running. But boy, in the next second, he was standing there promoting, holding up a Joe Biden sign. Promote. You almost just thought, boy, what did he get promised last night? Because 
It was so sudden. And he was one of the most faithful surrogates during the campaign. I read an article yesterday that named him as probably the most absolute cabinet member of all the people that are being speculated. He will be one. Everybody's guessing which one. UN ambassador. That's the other one that you hear. That's another one, yeah. Six languages can build bridges. It will help him develop that street cred to eventually do something bigger. But I've heard, too, that then he'll have access to all of the New York money. And as we're looking for the future, there might be some who don't want him to have that much of an advantage, possibly a vice president. I don't know. I think you're right. Do do they groom him and help him? Gosh, he's so young and so talented. Do they groom him? and try to give him a path that leads to something. I personally think Veterans Affairs is kind of another dead-end secretary. I agree. What's the thing I read? That it's a high-risk, low-reward agency. Yeah. So I think it's a shame. If that's where he ends up, I think they're sort of wasting a talent. But you're right. He was a very loyal campaigner. And he's a good campaigner. I mean, you almost want to nurture someone like that. But we'll have to see if that happens. Obviously, um, the president, even in a divided government, I think as we said in our last time together, President Obama sort of brought the use of the executive order to popularity and then President Trump mastered it. So I'm assuming we're going to see some of that right out of the gate. I think there'll be some that really affect our industry. The environmental regulations, waters of the U.S., things that we thought were taken care of when Trump abolished them. And those are just temporary. New administration, turn them on their head. The two for one, right? For every one that you pass, you have to take two off or whatever that was, the executive order from Trump. Yeah. Surely that's going to be going out the window quick. Yeah. 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 With all the national monuments he delisted that are now probably going to get delisted. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with executive orders is they can be undone. It's a bit frustrating, though, for industries because... They get whiplash. You know, Obama pushed them one way. Trump pulls them back the other way. Biden will probably push it back the Obama way. And I'm sure it's frustrating for all the regulated parties who have to respond to these various executive orders. So the frustration I think all of us had with the last four years was the continuing dangling of the carrot of the infrastructure package that was coming. And it's going to be infrastructure week and we're going to invest in infrastructure and then nothing ever came of it. Is this an easy, low-hanging fruit for this president in a divided government? I think so. But I'll tell you, everyone's got their own definition of what infrastructure means. I mean, I mean, years ago, it meant highways and airports and dams and water systems. and But now it includes broadband and uh, all kinds of exotic stuff that is not what we typically think of as infrastructure. I think it's harder to do a big infrastructure package that includes some of these newer ideas, green energy and that sort of thing. I think if it's just a traditional highway program, that's pretty easy to do. We we had the current Congress had passed a bill in the House, had gotten a bill through the committee level in the Senate. They just, you know, ran out of time. And I think it'll be fairly easy for the Congress next year to pick up that effort and uh, move it forward again. But as far as a bigger stimulus, kind of an infrastructure package, they oddly lack oomph for some reason. It's funny because Republicans and Democrats both claim they want to do it. And they both will talk about it as being a good idea. But for some reason, they lack oomph. And it's a bit baffling to me. A while ago, I used to think, oh, it's because they cost a lot of money. And there are people in the Congress who are concerned about the budget. But that's gone away. Uh, No one cares. No one in Washington cares about spending anymore. And Republicans or Democrats. And so 
that motive has gone away. So I'm not sure what's holding it back anymore. It makes very little sense to me, but it lacks energy for some reason. Now, it could just be that over the last few years, the oxygen had been sucked out of the room with all these other issues, immigration and COVID and all these other things that just really didn't leave any bandwidth for Congress to do something as practical as an infrastructure package. Maybe now it'll be something that can get some attention, especially with some of the politics being toned down. I mean, the first thing you heard the day after the election was, let's lower the temperature, let's lower the temperature. And you heard it from a lot of legislators. And I think if that happens, you, you might see more opportunity to, to get practical legislation through on things that affect everyday Americans, the things that aren't that sexy, such as infrastructure, something important to every American but, you know, it's, it's not the stuff that uh, you see on the evening news that much. I blame the lack of an infrastructure package in the last four years on lack of follow through. It was always this big idea and it was always infrastructure week, which became a joke among the pundits. Infrastructure. Oh, it's infrastructure week again. Late night comics making jokes about infrastructure week like yes. nobody even knows or hears what that is. Exactly. But the administration, whose proposal it was to have a trillion dollar package, never introduced a package. They never had more than a two page memo outlining what it might be. And that showed you they were not serious. And all the other distractions you talked about overtook it because it was so inconsequential. The ideas had not been formed. They were easy to push away. I really think that if there's some follow through with this administration that looks like it's coming in and the agreement that there could be among Republicans who like to build things, like to spend money on future returns like infrastructure is, and Democrats who like to spend on it because it's good union jobs and that sort of thing, there could be some pretty easy agreement, but there's going to have to be some meat put on the bone and some follow through that, that we haven't seen yet. Well, I thought it was really interesting. Lindsey Graham even talked about needing to do something. And even though the House agenda is DOA when it comes over, there's somewhere, some place to find a solution for infrastructure. We talked about changing up the Highway Trust Fund and nobody's wanted to really touch that. They talk about it if we're lucky, but nobody ever really wants to touch it. So he's in line to be budget committee chair, I think. So the fact that he's talking about that is hopeful. I wonder what will happen in the lame duck that's coming up that might be a precursor, even though you will still have a Republican president. And maybe for you, Steve, what I'm wondering. That was going to be my final topic to bring up as we've got till January 20th now of of an existing Congress and administration. So what are we looking at? A continuation, an increase? What are the smoke signals that Dennis referenced? I think they'll be lucky to get two things done. <laughs> One is to complete the budget. We haven't passed a budget yet for this year. And we're in the, we're in the fiscal year already. We haven't passed the budget. So one is to complete all the appropriation bills and complete funding for a federal fiscal year 2021. So they need to do that. I think it's doable, but it'll take a lot of effort to wrap that up before Christmas. The second thing is some sort of stimulus related to COVID and COVID relief. What, as you know, before the election, there have been a lot of negotiations going on between the White House and House Democrats about a package. So they have some of it hammered out and they suspended their efforts at one point about a week or two before the election. And then the election is behind us now. So all parties, including Mitch McConnell, are, are saying that they want to return to those efforts. And I think uh, even uh, President-elect Biden has said that that's a priority for him. So I think it's conceivable that they do 
some sort of COVID relief package here in the remaining time this year. Now, I doubt it's going to be the $2 trillion plus package, but it might be between a half trillion and a trillion. You know, we have a spike going on all over the country in, in the disease, and that'll end up affecting the economy, particularly as we get deeper and deeper into the winter. And so I think there's definitely political support for something to be done before the end of the year. So I think, I think that'll be their focus are those two things. And those two things will absolutely eat up the remaining time. First of all, there's not that much remaining time. It's about six weeks. So, uh, those two things would easily consume six weeks. Just wonder how much Republicans will try to hamstring the incoming administration with skinnier spending bills and especially a slim stimulus package to not help the economy too much for the Biden presidency in its first year. Yeah. Be interesting to see. Yeah. I can't remember who it was, but there was a senator on the news the other day saying, hey, you know, this doesn't have to be a one-time thing. We can do a small package now before the end of the calendar year and then do another one sometime in the early next year. So he was essentially arguing that these don't have to be mammoth packages. They can, we kind of sort of do them as they go. Uh, you're right. I really am going to be very interested to see how obstructionist the Republican Party wants to be at this point. How much energy do people have? to sort of continue this style of governing that they've engaged in, very aggressive, both out of the White House and then, and then the Senate. It's exhausting, quite frankly, uh, <laughs> to fight on absolutely everything and to find no agreement on anything and to, to not really get much of anything done, but to simply smash together two parties crashing together constantly in a battle that never produces anything. So I think it'll be interesting to see how much stomach people have for that. I'm really interested in that also. Some have said Mitch McConnell has a relationship with Biden and they're going to get along and he'll give him his cabinet and they'll work deals, et cetera, et cetera. I remember when Obama came in, Mitch McConnell openly said, my objective is to make sure he's a one-term president. Well, the incoming president is fairly moderate, so he's not the scary liberal that Obama might have been. But that lurking shadow behind Obama, Kamala Harris, I think they're going to be really worried about that socialist. You know? <laughs> you know, Biden may not be here long. Who knows? They're going to be as scared of her as they were of Obama. Yeah. Well, I read that McConnell said that about Biden also, that he was, again, that was his job. That's why I was laughing that about how exhausting it is. And I thought, you know, Mitch McConnell has way more energy than that. <laughs> I think he'll definitely, from a policy perspective, push back on, you know, you would like to think there'd be cooperation on things like getting the pandemic under control. Whether or not he's going to cooperate on things like climate change, no, he's not. Is he going to cooperate on things like bringing back or fixing Obamacare? No, he's not. And so, I think that's already pretty evident. And, and McConnell will work with the Republicans in Congress to do everything they can to be obstructionist on those agenda items. But I think on some of the other agenda items that President-elect Biden had put forward in the last few days, I think there will be cooperation, particularly on things like stimulus and getting the economy back going again and getting the disease tackled and getting a vaccine out and things like that. Was there anything else we haven't touched on? Anybody want to have a final shout out before we talk to you again in another two years? I think I think uh, Indiana came out way ahead in one area of this election that nobody really has talked about. Todd Young was the chairman of the senatorial campaign committee. 
And he looked like he was going to have mud all over him. And folks said Republicans were going to lose six to eight seats, going to lose control of the Senate to the Democrats. He raised a record amount of money, $250 million compared to about 150 in the past. And they're in all likelihood going to retain control of the Senate for uh, Republicans. He's in the small group of leadership of the Senate. He's a young, young guy. He can be there a long time. Mitch McConnell is 78 years old. He'll be 84 when his term ends. Todd Young's going to go places if he wants to hang around. That was a good one, Dennis. Well, thanks for joining us. Good luck during your respective legislative sessions. (laughs) We'll need it. Thank you again to our guests, Steve Fisher, Lori Maudlin, Dennis Falkenberg, and Richard Hedgecock, as well as our sponsor, Assured Partners of Indiana. To get in touch with Assured Partners of Indiana, give them a call at 317-844-7759. Join us every Friday during your morning commute to hear safety talks, member spotlights, and inside information about the infrastructure and transportation construction industry. This has been ICI Digs Deep. Let's break ground together.